Hello, and welcome to episode three of From Paper to People, Ancestors Alive Genealogy's new podcast. I am your hostess with the mostest, Carolyn Nee Lachlan, and this week's topic is folklore, or just the facts, ma'am. I wanted to let you know that this is a re-recording. I hope that you didn't hear the first one because I had a little bit of a technological difficulty. I'm working my way into knowing how to do this. And uh, also that I'm enjoying a beautiful day, and I hope you are too. It is snowing outside in a fluffy sort of way, and I'm enjoying a lovely, word of wisdom friendly cup of cocoa chai. So I hope that you're sitting back and, and you're enjoying what you're doing. Maybe you're on the treadmill or whatever. Um, But this is only about 20 minutes, a nice bite-sized piece, and we're going to talk about folklore, and it's absolutely for everybody. If you're doing your own family research and you're just starting out, this is absolutely the episode for you. And if you've just been in the work for a while but don't have much patience for folklore, hang in there too because I'm going to show you why it's good stuff. So let's start with the basics. What is folklore? It's subjective storytelling from one point of view, though it can be a collective process. It does not involve evidence. It's made up of two basic elements, questions asked by an interviewer and the responsive answers that are given by the informant or person being interviewed. The questions themselves are important and they are a part of the folklore itself because the same questions can be asked in a variety of ways and some versions of a given question will yield more information than other versions of that same question as I'll show you in a minute. That variety can give the interviewer a vision of the way that an informant thinks or remembers, and the interviewer can shift gears to suit that informant's specific needs. Now, I I know that folklore gets a bad rap in genealogical circles, but when you're first starting up your own tree or you're working with somebody new, folklore is really a good place to start. Most people don't have legal documents or family letters to establish family names and dates, stories, are a great way to begin. Can folklore be tall tales of things that people wish happened? Absolutely, it's littered with apocrypha, and I'll give you an example of that. But there are always kernels of truth in a story, no matter how wild the story. And the stories you collect will provide the bones on which you can later hang the meat of documentary research, which is a slightly gross way of saying that it's actually very important. So, an example from my family. For years, I was told that my great-great-uncle Charlie and his wife Fanny died on the same day. He was killed in an oil well explosion in, according to the family, Desdemona, Texas, and she was so disheartened that she went home and immediately committed suicide. They were Catholic, but because she committed a mortal sin, she was buried on the outside of the church cemetery and he on the inside, just across the wall from one another. That's a very romantic story. It's a very creepy story, too, but hey, you know, we're talking about some Irish Catholics here. Now, I was able to put them both on my tree and find evidence of his life via census and other family group documentation, but nothing of hers and no proof of the story of their deaths were available. There wasn't even any proof of their marriage available. The first thing that I found that disproved some of the lore was their shared headstone, and I found it on Find a Grave. They were buried in a municipal cemetery, not a Catholic one, together in 1923, and they were next to his mother and siblings. So the whole Catholic sin aspect of the story was off. And I have his rosary, so I do know that he was Catholic, but that burial story was just good old-fashioned Texas bloviation. 
Next, I searched, and I mean for years. I went to websites about explosions in history. I looked in Texas history. I called the Texas State Archives, and I couldn't find a thing about an explosion in Desdemona in 1923. And I was beginning to doubt the whole story when, based on their shared death date, I decided to search newspapers.com for his name and a possible obituary. 35 years after my search began, I found the actual story in a Fort Worth paper. Charlie was injured and killed in an oil well explosion, but in Bristow, Oklahoma. Fanny did kill herself. In grief, she walked home from the hospital, grabbed a pistol, and shot herself about an hour after Uncle Charlie's death. The folklore led me to the facts, and these facts led me to their death certificates, which showed that my great-grandfather signed for their bodies and had them sent to the municipal ground in West Virginia for burial in the, in the family plot. The moral of this story is the folklore was a jumping off point that allowed for further research and eventually the facts, including her maiden name, came out. So folklore works. Now we need good methodology. How do we do it? Here's an example from yesterday's project. I was talking to a friend who is also a new reparational client. We were just getting started. He had done no research with his family at all and we were talking about his grandparents. I asked him, when did your grandfather die? And he replied, I'm not sure. So I went at it from a different angle. I asked, was he alive during your lifetime? Did you know him? And he replied, yes. This gave me room to try another approach. I asked, how old were you when your grandfather died? Because we usually do have some frame of reference for this sort of thing. We can remember where we were in school or associate a hit record of the year or something like that. And it can help us to find a date or a date range for an event like the death of a relative. He recalled his own age at the time of grandpa's death. We did the math and we arrived at an approximate date of death for his grandfather. That was a really good start. And then spontaneously, he said, I know he was 78 when he died. That gave me a rough birth year. I just had to pull out a calculator because I stink at math. <laughs> I subtracted grandpa's death age from his death year, and I had his birth year. Now remember, all of this is approximate. With folklore, nothing is set in stone, but it's a great starting point. Then the magic kicked in, and this is really important. Having recalled a few things successfully, and having seen that his memory was better than he thought, my friend began to recall more easily and without any prompting what state grandpa had been born in, and even a story about he, why he traveled from one state to another in early adulthood. Now we had an approximate birth date, birthplace, death date, and death place for grandpa. That's a lot of information to get in just a few minutes. And most of all, my friend warmed up and remembered more fluently as we went. He started the session uncertain about the whole process and ended it excited because he knew more than he thought. We went through this for both of his parents and all of his grandparents, and voila, a tree was born. So you can see why folklore is important in genealogy. It's not about absolute facts. It's about a starting place. Asking questions in a specific way, we can elicit bits of truth about where and when people lived, what their names were, how many kids they had, the kinds of business they engaged in, where they worshipped, how they voted in elections, all sorts of things that help to build a tree to, point to uh, the point that we can start seeking verifiable documentation. With that in mind, we can break the uses of folklore into two. 
one that looks for facts, and one that celebrates family stories. This week I'm discussing the first kind of folklore, the kind that lets an interviewer locate names, dates, and places of the major events of life that are required in genealogy, birth, marriage, divorce, and death, or the BMDDs. Regardless of what you're seeking, the methodology is the same. It's based in preparation, gentleness, and love. It is not a deposition. It's a conversation in which the interviewer asks open-ended questions that allow for the informant to really talk. Also, it's much more about the informant than it is about the interviewer. Your role as interviewer is not to answer the questions for or with your informant, but to ask and then sit quietly as the informant accesses his or her memories and fills the space. Think about Ellen DeGeneres or Oprah. They're great interviewers because they ask a question and then sit back, creating a space for their informants to fill. It's astonishing to watch. And then you think about somebody like Chris Matthews who just can't shut up. Do not be Chris Matthews. Lead with your inner Oprah. And if one way of asking a question doesn't work, reframe the question. If you share memories of a person with your informant, use that knowledge to lovingly and gently prompt your informant. Didn't you once tell me that your dad used to blah, blah, blah is a great way to open up your informant, but then be sure that you sit back and let them fill the space. Here are my 10 points of prep for successful folklore gathering. One, choose your informants by age. Interview the oldest folks in your life first. It sounds callous, but you want the oldest memories first before they are lost to you altogether. My uncle had the foresight to interview the most senior elders in our family on tape back in the 1970s, and I'm forever grateful for that because they're gone now, and I couldn't do that on my own. And by the way, we're, we're going to discuss a few of the shocking revelations that came out of uh, my interv- the interview with my great-grandmother, um, small town Texas in the 1930s. You'll see exactly what I mean. She was born in 1898, and it is some surprisingly scandalous stuff. Number two, prepare your informant, because there's always an element of psychology involved in interviewing anybody. Tell your informant what you're doing. Hey, mom, I'm building a family tree. Ask permission to interview her. Show respect for her time schedule. Set up a time and a place for the interview, whether it's by phone or Skype or messenger video chat or Google Hang or in person, where and when your informant will be relaxed. If your informant sundowns or loses memory as the day turns to evening, schedule accordingly. Ask her to shut off the phone ringer. Make sure she has her favorite tea, a nice mochaccino, or a couple of shots of vodka, whatever chills her out. You want her relaxed, fed, watered, and above all, to have peed. You may think I'm joking, but I'm not. It's like the family road trip. Everybody needs to pee first, you included. And with that, I'm going to take a little sip of my delicious beverage. Mm, That's the pause that refreshes. Number three, prepare yourself. Think about your goals. You want names and BMDDs, birth, marriage, divorce, and death, dates, and places. Women always go by their maiden names in genealogy because, fellas, we existed before we married you. I know, it's harsh but true. You can't find mom's birth certificate using her married name because she wasn't married at birth, right? So stay focused on that objective. Stay focused on your objective. Complete info to the best of your informant's ability. Also remember that there are a lot of ways to get answers. For argument's sake, let's say that you're interviewing your dad and you want your grandmother's deeds. So you ask, 
What's your mom's birth date? A direct question like that can move you to the next item if dad knows the answer. But if he doesn't, it's the hardest type of question to answer, particularly early in the interview. People we interview, informants, tend not to have a whole lot of confidence in themselves until they've had it proven to themselves that they can actually do this. And dad hasn't had that chance to prove this to himself. He's good at remembering things, but he doesn't know it. It's a slightly tense process for even the most willing informant because a direct question is a stand and deliver kind of thing. So start with that hardest form of the question in case he can answer it and move you on to the next point. And then work your way around to the easier ways so he knows where you're headed if you actually can't get that direct answer first thing. It will give dad confidence to reach an answer regardless of the way that he does it. Another way of asking dad that question would be, about when was your mother born? What season? Roughly what year? These are versions of the question that feel softer and may serve better to prompt memories. Using qualifying terminology like about and roughly make the question feel easier. There is deep psychology in this. You can also go at it from your dad's birth date. You ask, how old was your mom when you were born? And then do the math. If dad was born in 1950 and his mother was 20 when she gave birth, that means that grandma was born in 1930. The miracle of mathematics. And if you're hopeless like me, have a calculator handy. Now note that all of these questions get you to the same place, grandma's birth date. Four, make a list of questions to ask and leave space under each one to make notes. Your questions should be open-ended. They would require a narrative, not a yes or no. You want a conversation, not a grilling at headquarters. Five, follow a logical process when asking questions. What was grandma's name? Did she have any siblings? What were their names? Who was older and who was younger? All of these questions together help you to build a generation within a tree, a starting place that will lead you to all of the documents on ancestry and family search that will refine the facts in your tree. Six, start with what you know yourself and go backwards generation by generation into what you don't know. Ask about dad's family, about mom's family. Ask dad about mom's family and vice versa. They may well know things about one another's people that you didn't even expect. Seven, get a good recording app on your phone and record every interview. Use a communications method type like, uh, like Skype that will automatically record the interview. Make sure you have cloud memory or a backup drive to store copies of the interviews. I lost three hours of incredible interviewing time with my dad from last year, and now I have to do it all over because the recording app I used was subpar. So please do not make my mistake. Eight, before you actually interview, test your technology, C number seven. Don't waste your informant's time with 15 minutes of connectivity problems and that sort of nonsense. Make sure that things are recording and backing up properly. This is a work of love and respect. You don't want to make people wait or repeat themselves. Nine, be on time. And this is true everywhere in life. Your elders will appreciate you not only because you respect their stories, but because you respect them. And a happy informant now makes a willing informant next week or next month. And 10, know that your informant may not be thrilled with answering all the questions that you have prepared at once or at all. Pay attention. And if your informant is tiring, stop at a logical place and schedule another session. 
If your informant is edgy about discussing a particular member of the family, just move on to the next topic. Your goal is to help your informants to become more interested in the work, to enjoy your sessions, and to open up more in the future rather than to shut down after one interview and never talk to you again. Now remember that I said earlier that this can be a collective process? Another way of gathering folklore is to get multiple elders into a room or on a call or in a recording session and, uh, and, and to let them go. <laughs> I don't recommend this as a first step, absolutely, because it can get kind of hectic. It's a little bit like herding cats. But by the same token, that is exactly what you're going for. So if you choose to do this, follow the same procedures I've outlined before and let everybody answer the questions while you guide people to stay on topic. You're going to have to be a mediator in a situation like this. And this can be a little bit of trouble if you're not, you know, at least a little bit seasoned in what you're doing. In the classic Japanese film Rashomon, three different people recount their memory of a traumatic event that they witnessed together. Each has his own version of the event. But between all of the recounted versions, the truth of the incident comes out. Much like in Rashomon, putting family informants together not only gives a more complete view of what really happened and who folks really were, it allows participants to warm up to one another, to prompt one another, to tell more stories, and to have more fun doing it. Ultimately, I want you to celebrate your family in your work. This approach to gathering lore actually strengthens family bonds and understanding between generations. It's fun, it's fascinating, and it absolutely works. Thanks a lot for listening today. Find me online at AncestorsAliveGenealogy.com and on Facebook at Ancestors Alive Genealogy. You can follow me on Twitter at Ancestors Alive and on Instagram at Ancestors Alive Genealogy. If you have a request, a dispute, a book recommendation, or you just want to say hi, you can contact me at Ancestors Alive Genealogy at gmail.com. And now you can support this podcast on Patreon and win or earn valuable prizes. Go to patreon.com slash ancestors alive and sign up for any of four support levels ranging from $5 to $25 per month. Have a great week, do your research, and above all, expect surprises.